0: Alright, good morning guys. Welcome to Salt City. My name is Drew, for those of you who don't know me. And we have been going through this series through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been praying that Jesus would change us. And as I was thinking about this week's text, I was reminded of the first sermon I ever gave in Salt City Church three years ago. And the text for that sermon was from the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 5. And what I was compelled by then and what I'm still compelled by now is that the primary way that Jesus is at work in this world is not in a top-down way. It's not through political power. It's not through might. It's not through us changing the society around us to mimic the kingdom of God. But the primary way that God works in the world is by changing individual people from the inside out. And so even when all hell is breaking loose in the world around us, which it is, more than it ever has been in my lifetime, it is. And we all felt that viscerally once again this week, and I think all of us are feeling like, when is this going to stop? What can I do? And I think what we're going to see Jesus call us to in this passage is non-participation in the world around us in the sense that we refuse We take a stand and we refuse to freak out. We refuse to participate in outrage. We refuse to be viscerally angry and stressed out. And Jesus is going to call us to this alternative way of thinking because we believe that he is our king. And so here's sort of the big idea that's going to pull everything together this morning. It's that citizenship in God's kingdom changes us from the inside out. And what we're going to look at is three inner attitudes that citizens of the kingdom of God have, even in times like these. And so the first one we're going to see is that our inner life is going to be characterized by humility instead of pride. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, and first we're going to look at just verses 1 through 4. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' disciples, probably led by Peter, they come to Jesus, and they're trying to get at what this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is all about. And when you want to participate in a kingdom, what you want to know is, is how the king of that kingdom defines greatness. All of us, without exception, whether we're Christians or not Christians at all, all of us long to be great. And in the world, greatness is defined by what you can achieve, how high you can climb on the ladder. It's about being beautiful, it's about being smart, it's about having a lot of money, it's about grasping for political power, and it's about being right. The world of Jesus, when he was walking on the earth, was no different than our world in this respect. People were seeking greatness in slightly different ways, but everyone was still seeking to be great. And so the disciples want to know, Jesus, what's your take on how a person becomes great in your kingdom? What are the rules that we are to play by? And Jesus says that if you want to be great in his kingdom, it's not about trying to achieve something. Kids aren't achievers. Kids are receivers. They're humble. Humble in ways that make us feel uncomfortable as adults. And Jesus doesn't spell this out for us, right? He doesn't say, humble like a child in these different ways. And I think what he's inviting us to do, as he gives this beautiful illustration of what it's like to be great in his kingdom, is he's inviting us to use our imaginations. We all get a picture in our mind of what a little kid is. Maybe you get a a picture of a kid dancing at a wedding, right? A little girl just in her own world, spinning her dress around, just thinking about nothing that anyone thinks about her. But all of us have these images that come to our mind. And so I thought about this and started imagining maybe what was in Jesus' mind, and I'm leaving some things out, and you'll think of those things and and meditate on those things later. But some things I love about kids is that they're in awe instead of being cynical. We tend to be cynical. We can go to beautiful places like the Grand Canyon and say things like, well, it's just kind of a big hole. But kids are in awe of everything around them. Not just things that we're in awe of, but they can be in awe of even seeing a grasshopper or seeing snowfall. Like I can start to think, well, you don't have to scoop the driveway. But kids are just like snow, sledding, exciting. Kids are in awe instead of being cynical. They're dependent instead of being self-sufficient. Kids don't have a hard time asking for help. They intuitively know that they need their parents to meet their daily needs. And so they're constantly just asking people to help them. And they're sort of unaware of what other people wouldn't want to do to help them or how it's inconveniencing them. They're just so needy and they're okay with just going to the adults around them to help them. I think Jesus is calling us to be dependent on God in a similar way. God doesn't want us to live self-sufficient, independent lives. It's okay to not know. It's okay to have needs. It's okay to come to him, not to show off your performance from the week, but because you need him. Kids are dependent, not self-sufficient. Kids are learners, not know-it-alls. Kids are constantly asking questions about the world around them. They constantly want to know how things work, how things came to be. They think of questions that we don't even think to ask. They're constantly in our ear. If you've ever ridden in a car with a kid for a long period of time, you know that they will exhaust you with their questions. Just question after question, after question, after question, after question. And what that means is that kids continue to learn and be sponges at an incredible rate. And I think Jesus is inviting us to open our ears and not to be know-it-alls, but to be learners in his kingdom, to say, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. I'm not very good at this. And I need you to teach me. And to be honest, inside, I feel like I don't have that much to offer. And that's okay. Because the way to be great in the kingdom is to become humble. And the last, probably my favorite of all that I thought of, is how kids are honest instead of saving face. You know, so kids will tell you things that happened. They'll tell you things that their parents did. They'll tell you things that their siblings did, and they'll even tell you things that they did in sort of just this uncalculated authenticity. Okay, let me give you a, an example of that from my house. So I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, 7-year-old twins and a 4-year-old. Okay? So I get a huge dose of this all the time. So I'm sitting at the table with my family. And we're having family dinner and just having a conversation. And all of a sudden, my son, Gabe, my, f- my he's five now. I keep saying he's four. He's five. All right, my five-year-old son, Gabe, <laughs> says in front of all of us, he goes, hey, guys, I'm a cheapskater. <laughs> Apparently, he had heard like the phrase cheapskate. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I got to dig a little bit on this. So I'm like, Gabe what do you mean you're a cheapskater? And he goes, well, I save all my money and I don't give any of it away and I don't spend any of it. And I'm just like, you are. Like, you got the definition right. You are a cheapskater. And I was just delighted by his authenticity. I'm like, man, what if our Christian community was marked by this? Like, what if people just started showing up at our connection groups? They're just like, I'm a cheapskate. That's true. Why do you say that? Well, I don't give any of my money to the church. I save it all. Spend it all on myself. Just this uncalculated authenticity is such a beautiful thing. And it was such a beautiful thing for me as Gabe's dad because it allows me to ask him questions, to dig at that, It didn't make me want to shame him. It made me just want to love him and help to shape him more and more. And so Jesus is offering us in this time where everyone around us is trying to justify themselves. When everyone is trying to prove that they're on the right side of history, that they're doing the right thing, and everyone's sort of putting this version of themselves out there that's not even true and are trying to be great on the world's terms. Jesus is inviting us to take a stand and become like kids. To be humble instead of being proud. And even as you catch this vision, even as you're listening to this right now, can't you feel this like the pressure go out of your shoulders? Can't you feel the beauty of the life that Jesus is calling you to live. So you'd be like, man, I want a king like that. Man, I want to tune out the culture. I want to tune out the vitriol. I want to tune out the outrage. Because to be honest, if we're honest with ourselves, even those of us with really strong political opinions or really strong opinions about what the leaders around us should do. At the end of the night, we hit the pillow and we are scared. We don't know what to do. And that's okay. Because Jesus knows what to do. And because he's our king, we can humble ourselves. We can be like little kids. We can be honest. The second thing that will mark the inner attitude of the citizen of Jesus' kingdom is forgiveness instead of bitterness. Look at Matthew 18, 21 and 22 with me. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So here's what's in Peter's mind. Not the big sins of strangers, but the routine sins of neighbors. What Peter's thinking about is the people that he lives with, the people that he interacts with on a daily basis, the other disciples. He's thinking about the ordinary annoyances and grievances that we have with the people around us, with our peers, with our friends, with our roommates, with our spouses, with our kids those things that just begin to grate on us. So he's not thinking about the big injustices in the world, although those those need to be forgiven as well. What he's thinking about is how many times do I have to forgive someone when they sin against me? And the biggest amount of forgiveness that Peter thinks he can muster, I always love Peter because he's so honest and he's kind of looking inside of himself and he's like, The most forgiveness that I could possibly muster for somebody is if they sinned against me seven times. I think I could maybe hold back seven times. All of us can relate to that. It's like, my roommate leaves the dishes in the sink one more time, it's over, it's done, it's been six times. I can forgive them seven times. One more time. I'm done. We're putting our relationship online. Only talking to her on Zoom. Right? But Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I did the math 490 times. Is that what Jesus is saying? That you should like get a rock that you mark with a sharp tool. And once you get to 490, it's over. uh, One, two, right? It's like, we're at three, we're at 489. One more, please. And I can disavow my friendship with you. No, it's not what Jesus is saying. How do we know? Because Jesus Writes like this entire point of the sermon for me. So when I think of like each point of a sermon that I write, I think of like the explain section and then I think of the illustrate section because I want the point to hit home with everybody. So I want to tell a story that people remember so that they can know what I'm getting at, what I'm calling them to. And Jesus is the master illustrator. And so Jesus has this discussion with Peter. And then he wants it to hit home, so he illustrates it for him. And he tells a story, and basically he says, imagine that there's this servant. And this servant has a massive debt to the king of the country. And Jesus uses an astronomically large number to describe the debt. If you translate what Jesus is saying in this parable, what he's saying is that the servant is in debt to the king, the equivalent of $4.5 billion. And so think about this. The only way that a servant could be indebted to a king at $4.5 billion is if that servant pulled off like an Ocean's Eleven-style heist and broke into the king's vault and took all of his money. That would be crazy. And then that he could lose that money and not have it in his possession would mean that he went on the greatest spending spree in history. And here's what happens in the story. Jesus says, imagine this scenario where this type of injustice has been done by a servant of a king. And imagine that the king comes to that servant and he says, I'm going to sell your whole family away. I'm going to make you slaves, not of a king who's treated you graciously, but of a a king who will treat you Horribly And the servant gets on his knees and pleads with the king, "Please, don't do that. Please, forgive my debt." And the king says yes, which have been absolutely shocking in that culture it's shocking to us it would have been even more shocking to them because they lived in a monarchy not a democracy which means the king's word is absolutely final and the king never lets anyone get away with anything because he rules with an iron fist no one gets away with anything And the king certainly wouldn't show mercy if he was going to show mercy to his servant because he would lose all credibility. $4.5 billion debt, you're forgiven? Think how much the other citizens of the kingdom would take advantage of that king. And then in the story, the servant leaves that situation, goes out onto the street, sees a fellow servant walk by who owes him the equivalent of $5,000 and having just been forgiven $4.5 billion demands that the servant who owes him $5,000 pay up now or he'll have him thrown in prison. And the servant gets on his knees before a fellow servant and begs him and pleads him for mercy, and he says, no. Takes him by the hand, leads him to the prison, and has him thrown in a dungeon. And Jesus says, that's what it's like to be an unforgiving person. Because Jesus is the king who has forgiven our debt far more than $4.5 billion. He's forgiven the debt of our rebellion against heaven. We have shaken our fists at God. We have given him the finger. We have said, I can live my own life. And even though we're made in his image to reflect his likeness, we have said, no, my life is not about your glory, God. My life is about me and my glory. And so we have robbed him of glory day after day after day, our entire lives. We have committed a heist against and Jesus has forgiven us not by just letting us go free, but by taking the punishment that we deserve. He has gone to the cross in our place and died a substitutionary death for us. He's taken the penalty on. So yes, he let us go free, but then the punishment that we deserved, he took on himself. And so he has forgiven us at great cost to himself. And so Jesus says, when we refuse to forgive others, it's because we've forgotten the debt that he's paid. The way that we should calculate our lives is that we are always Winning in Christ. Because if the people around you owe you, you're still way up. Like you do the calculation, it's like you're still at $4.495 billion. You're still doing great. And so, in order to forgive those around us, we need to stop saying it's not fair they're treating me. That's the language of our heart or what we say to our other roommates or what we say to our friends about our spouse. It's not fair how they're treating me. And then we tell the story, we get people on our side, and we've created this language that basically tells the story that everyone else is indebted to us. They owe us. They haven't been pulling their weight. They haven't been living up to their end of the bargain. And what Jesus wants to create in his disciples is that we would change our it's not fair because everyone owes me to it's not fair that God gave me grace instead of condemnation. It's not fair. The reality that it's not fair is the greatest news in the world. It's not fair. My dad used to say fair is a four letter word that starts with F and you can't say that in my house. And that's what God is saying to us. If you're gonna say it's not fair, say it's not fair that I sent my son to die a bloody death in your place. Stop counting the debts against you. Set the people free in your life like I've set you free. Let the people in your life out of jail because I've let you out of jail. Bask in my grace. Forgive the people on the other side of the political spectrum. Forgive the people who have a different perspective of racial justice. Forgive your roommate for leaving their dishes in the sink. Forgive your son or daughter for speaking back to you. Forgive your spouse for ignoring you or for withholding from you. Set people free because Jesus has set you free. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? you he took on the punishment for what you owe here's how you forgive others you take on the punishment for what they owe which means it's going to be difficult You're going to lay in bed and you are going to wrestle with God and you're going to need to preach this good news message of grace to yourself. And you need to say to yourself, you're still up by a lot. You're still winning because you're in Christ. See, the world thinks it's a good idea to forgive, but no one has the resources to forgive because in order to forgive, you have to know that you have been forgiven more than you can ever forgive those around you. You have to know that your bank account is still way up, that no one really owes you anything, but you owe them forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for you. What freedom we would have, what beauty we would demonstrate to the world around us, if we would be forgiving people. How different would our social media feeds look? How different would our personal interactions be? How different would the opinions that come out of our mouth be delivered? How many more close relationships would we have if we would learn to forgive like this? And the third thing that Jesus says, an inner attitude that begins to take shape in our lives when Jesus is our king is that there will be thankfulness instead of envy. Look at Matthew 19 verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said in reply, see we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for not my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so Jesus has just explained to his disciples that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And he uses this illustration, he says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Peter's response is, but we're not rich anymore because we left out everything to follow you. And Jesus' response is to assure him that he really hasn't given up anything. He promises him that in this life he'll receive a hundredfold and in eternal life he'll be rewarded forever. He's saying you can't outgive God. When you give everything to God, he rewards you. But then Jesus tacks on this statement at the end. It's kind of hard to understand. He says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Why does he say that? It almost seems like a non sequitur. What is Jesus getting at by saying that? And he explains again by providing the illustration for us. So he says, Guys, imagine this time, not a king, but the master of of a house and the master has some work that he needs to get done at his place and so he goes down to the town square and he goes to the place where people who want to be hired out as day workers are waiting to be hired for the day and imagine that this master of the house goes and he hires a bunch of these workers and he pulls them onto his land and he has them do a hard day's work and he promises them a fair wage Let's just say in today's dollars, 400 bucks. And so these guys are working away all day. They're working through the heat of the day. They get a short lunch break. They keep working hard all day. And let's say they're almost to the end of the day. The sun is starting to set. And all of a sudden, they see another group of workers join them. And they're all working together side by side, except they've worked 8 or 10 hours that day. And these workers have just worked an hour or an hour and a half. So at the end of the day, the master of the house lines everybody up in a straight line to pay everyone. And he starts with the guys who only worked an hour or two. And he gives them $400. What are you beginning to think? If you're the person who went through the heat of the day, if they get $400, we're going to get one more, way more. And the master of the house, he says, goes down the line, and instead of giving them way more, he gives everyone in the line $400. And the guys who were there first get furious. What? We worked through the heat of the day, and you paid us the same as the... People who came in last? And here's what Jesus says in response. He says, he puts his words in the mouth of the master, and he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will will be last. What is Jesus saying? I want you to change your perspective about your life. I want you to stop thinking of what you have as something you earned. And I want you instead to think about what you have as a gracious gift from God. So did you know that your job is a gracious gift from God. The wage that you get paid is a gracious gift from God. The education that you had an opportunity to get is a gracious gift from God. Your family of origin is a gracious gift from God. The country that you were born in is a gracious gift from God. This idea of the American dream where people pull themselves up by their bootstraps, whatever that even means, and they live their lives as sort of a self-made man or woman, is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. It is antithetical to us understanding the kingdom of God. Because what he's saying is that everything we have is a gift. And so when other people... Get things that they didn't earn, you should not envy them. You should rejoice. Because just like you, everything that they got was a gift. Everything that we have is a gift. And so we need to stop scrolling and we need to get on our knees. And we need to say, thank you for my life. We need to remember that God does not owe us anything. And he has been incredibly generous to us. He has given us life and breath and everything else. And every time we breathe in and breathe out, that is a gift from our faithful Creator. Who loves us. C.S. Lewis gives this great illustration, I forget which book it's in, but he gives this great illustration of what the final judgment will look like. And he says, just imagine there's like a priest in line in the final judgment, and imagine there's also just an ordinary looking guy. And imagine that the priest goes in to heaven, and God tells him where he's going to live, and he lives in kind of a modest-sized house. And then there's another guy who walks up, this ordinary guy, and he came to Christ really late in his life. And God says to him, you get that mansion right up there with the great view on the hill. And so then the priest asks, wait, what did he do? I spent my whole life serving God and loving him. I wrote theology books And I was on mission for him. I fed the poor. I did all that. And God says to him, well, I gave you grace to do way more than that. And all I gave that guy grace to do was to stop kicking his cat. And that's what he did. He responded perfectly to my generosity with thankfulness. And I think that that is what Jesus is trying to pull us into imagining. understanding so that we get out of this mindset of God owing us because of our service to Him instead of us owing Him because of His generosity to us. God will not say thank you to anyone ever. He will only say, you're welcome. Because God only ever gives to us. He can receive nothing from us that he has not given to us. And so we can be thankful. We can say thank you for my life. And here's what drives this point home. It's right after this text, Jesus reminds us of what his mission is and here's what we see as all hell was breaking loose against jesus what came out was humility instead of pride forgiveness instead of bitterness and thankfulness instead of envy here's what jesus says his mission is matthew 20 verses 17 through 19 and as jesus was going up to jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside was. It was not to have a comfortable life. It was not to be worshiped as God, even though He was God when He was on the earth. It was to be tortured in our place in order that the kingdom of God would come to this earth. He saw Himself as having no rights. He saw God as having owed him nothing. And so he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's what we need to know as Christians about our fearless leader. He went first into this life that he calls us to, into costly forgiveness and humility and thankfulness in a world where everything and everyone is going crazy. He signed up for a life where he would get abused so others could come into the kingdom. And he's inviting us to believe that he did that for us and then to follow after him. And if we do that, just take a little step, forgive your roommate. Show humility instead of pride. Share your sin. Be thankful for the good gifts in your life. People around us will take notice and his kingdom will come, especially in a time like this. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king that we often don't want but that we desperately need. And Jesus, I I know we always need you, but I feel like we especially need you right now. God, it is so tempting for all of us to enter the cycle of outrage that is swirling around us. It's so tempting for us to get mad and get bitter and get proud and to start complaining about our lives right now. And Jesus, it'd take a miracle to change us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We want to be open to this. How beautiful would it be if we would stop raging inside and we would bow our knee before you and say, Lord, start with me. Change me. I'm the problem. I'm angry. I'm unforgiving. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.